0: The word of the Lord from Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had first made an altar to the first, or made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham, Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, "'Lift up your eyes.' and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, and came and settled by the oaks of memory which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love, God. We thank you for for, for your word that shows us, God, just how you have called us to, to yourself, and you called us to live for you. Father, we pray for today for Ryan as he comes to preach. God, I pray you would open his 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 mouth to bring forth uh, your words and I pray that our hearts would be open to hear from you God and only from you. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.
1: Amen. Y'all can be seated. <clears throat> Thanks Brian. Well if you're new here with us um, we're the family of God. That's just what we are. That's what we do and that's the only thing we know how to do. So um, you're getting that on display today and um, so we're Trust in God's word to, to speak to us today, and I think He will. Um, just what we need, actually. Um, Abram, Abram was a man that that knew uh, what it was like to receive a promise from God. Uh, he knew what it was like to trust that promise that he received from God, and he also knew what it was like to doubt that promise that he had received from God. And so, let me let me just introduce you to the characters that are in uh, Genesis chapter thirteen for us this morning. If you're new with us, um, Abram is the first first cat. All right, Abram was—he's uh, from Ur in the east. East in the in, in the book of Genesis, we've said east is bad, west good. Uh, so so east—he's from the east. He's from the land of Ur from a from a good family, not a godly family. Uh, followed God by faith when God met him, uh, and uh, called by God, worshipped God, trusted God, left all that he knew and all that he had, and. Uh, and then, and then the, the famine came, like we talked about last week, and, uh, and he doubted the promise that God gave him, that God would provide for him, that God would care for him, and that, his, and that his, his family would survive. And so he went down to this place called Egypt. Egypt in the book of Genesis or in the Bible in general is a place of false provision and security. And last week we talked about this idea that we all have our own Egypts. We've all got these places that we flee to when the promise seems like it's not going to come to fruition. And, and we said that, that when the famine comes, we're tempted to flee. When, 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 when faith runs out, we're, we're tempted to flee, but, but to remain and to walk by sight is to live by faith. So what we see with Abram today is he's, he's, he's repenting. He's coming back to the Lord. He's, he's trusting him. He's getting up and trusting those new morning mercies like the writer of Lamentations Jeremiah writes about in Lamentations 3. Now his wife Sarah uh, she's she's uh, Abram's beautiful 65-year-old barren wife who faithfully followed him from the homeland of Ur all the way to the promised land in Canaan and then suffered because of her husband's sin. She too went down to Egypt with Abram. And in Egypt, they devised a plan that we talked about last week where, where, where he, he, he left out some of the details of their relationship and gave his wife to the Pharaoh so that he could preserve his own life. And now they are back coming out of Egypt because God has forced them with a mighty hand out of Egypt. And we've got to imagine that that journey back to the promised land is a little bit awkward, right? And lastly, we've got this guy named Lot. Who's Lot? Well, Lot is Abram's nephew, Haran's son. The key thing to know about Lot is this, is that Abraham and Sarah didn't have any kids of their own. And so Lot became almost like a surrogate, son to Abram and Sarah. And so Lot actually leaves his family too in Ur, and he goes with Uncle Abram and Aunt Sarah to the promised land. Now, the thing that we notice about Lot is that, uh, that he's always just kind of tagging along. He's always with Abram and Sarah, but we don't get any indication in this journey where abrams called or where Lot's called by God where 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 he takes ownership of his relationship with the Lord too, and you know if you think about your life, we all have these seasons of our lives I mean, I think about my life especially when I was coming to faith um, i was I was with Chad and Scott all the time, and I was with their families. I mean, I even had a bedroom at scott's house. I was there so much right i mean chad 's family took me to school every day, they were believers, they introduced me to jesus and um, you know, I was I was learning who God was from a distance. There was a period of at least a year where I would I would have what you might say secondhand faith. I sat in the back row of the youth group. I came mostly for the girls. Luckily, I never found one. Enter Megan. Uh, I even got kicked out of youth group. So you can, if your kids ever get kicked out of youth group, you can just say, Hey, I'm just like Pastor Ryan. I was hanging out with this kid, and I kid you not, his name is Boo Boo. Yeah, there's first indication. I was hanging out with Boo Boo and we got in all kinds of trouble and got kicked out of youth group. So uh, anyway, but something happened in the summer of 1998. Something happened. God sought me out. And that secondhand faith became firsthand faith. It wasn't perfect. I stumbled a lot. I went down to Egypt a lot, just like Abram did. But the work started and Jesus mattered to me, not just my friends, And that good work is being carried on to completion in my life and, Lord willing, your life as well. The problem with secondhand faith is this. And some of you in this room may have secondhand faith, whether you're children or you're coming with your spouse, I don't know. The problem with secondhand faith is this, is it can never save you. Only a personal relationship with the God of the universe can save us. The faith of our friends can't save us. Faith of our spouse can't save us. The faith of our pastors, our grandmothers, or our friends cannot save us. Only a faith that is owned and personable, and person uh, personal to us from Jesus can save us. So here's our big idea of where we're going with this whole relationship with Abraham and Lot. Here is this that secondhand faith can't save us from a firsthand crisis. So what's the firsthand crisis? It's that we are separate from God. And we will be separate from God forever unless Jesus Christ breaks into your heart like he did for me in 1998. You can, you can sit in church all day long. You can have a your Christian wedding. You can go to youth group all day long. But if it's secondhand faith, it's not saving faith. And so what I wanna to do today is I wanna take some time as we walk through Genesis 13 and talk about some of the features of firsthand faith that we see really distinguished from Abraham and Lot here in this, in this uh, uh book here. So let's, let's look at the first four verses of Genesis 13 here for us. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him. Lot's with him, right? Into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich, and how did he get rich, church? The Pharaoh made him very rich, and God let him keep all that stuff when he left. He was rich in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. That's the key phrase there. Between Bethel and Ai, to the to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So what do we see happening here? When you look at Abram's route of travel, we know for sure God calls him all the way to the land of Canaan, right? Between, uh, you know, around Bethel there. And uh, we don't know that God calls him to Egypt. In fact, looking back now, God didn't call him to Egypt, right? Because he goes back to the place where God's call was sure and certain in his life. So he, he's going back to the place where God called him, and he's reclaiming it, right? He's put, he's put on his big boy pants. He's, he's confronted his sin, and he leaves Egypt and trusts God, is still in control and good on this promise that he's given him. He worship. He reclaims what he forsook in his disobedience. He rededicates his life, you might say. And that's really what repentance is, isn't it? It's rededicating your life. Now, I grew up in a, when my first introduction to the church was uh, a pretty uh, highly emotive kind of experience every single week. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Others of you have no idea. That's okay. Uh, And the way it would work every single week is we would have an altar call, right? And it's great because it would, we, we would have to look inward. You know, the, the problem was is that repentance, there was shame around repentance. It was almost like, oh, that guy didn't go down today. I mean, I know what he did on Friday night and he's not going down to the altar. I mean, come on. And so repentance for us was like quarterly. And it was like really when we got found out, right? And so that, that's what repentance or rededication for us was. Uh, gr- growing up, that's the way that I learned it. The heart Behind it was good, but the problem was it wasn't a life of repentance. It was a, a season or a moment of repentance. And there was a degree of shame around repentance. Some of you in this room have a degree of shame around repenting. I don't know where it came from, but it's, it's almost like if you repent, uh, then God doesn't lo- it proves that God doesn't love you. You've, it's kind of like that, that sad puppy dog that comes back right when they've done something wrong. That's the way that we approach God, but, but because Abram's Biggest crisis is his unbelief in God's promise to provide for his family. His relationship with God is the only solution that he's got. It's the only thing that he can hang on to. He can't hang on to Egypt. He can't hang on to the fact that he's already got a son of his own. He can't hang on to any of that. It's only him and the Lord there in the desert. And so he says that, you know, he sees that Egypt can't, can't give him what he really needs. Egypt can't give us what we need either. And remember, you know, metaphorically speaking, Egypt's the place we run to. But once he sees that he can still have a relationship with God, even though he's blown it, what happens to his relationship? It deepens. It gets stronger. His knowledge of who God is, his trust of who God is, is stronger. And it's through repentance that that happens. Repentance is about turning back. For Abram, it was a physical return to the place where God had called him and a reclaiming of that place when he returned. Now, it won't be the last time Abram has to do this, but for the moment, for this space in his life, we see spiritual growth manifested through his obedience, through his repentance and the new faith that God's given him. And that's the trajectory of every Christian's life, church. Every follower of Jesus, that, that Abram has a relationship with the personal God of the universe. And no amount of sin and shame can separate the fact that God sought him out and called him and wants him. And that's what's true for you. Repentance is like the, for us, it's like the, the glue that holds our relationship together. When we come back to God, we know that God, we know that God as well. We know that God. We know Him in the face of Jesus. And I want to remind you this morning, before your heart wanders too far, of who. God is and how he desires to relate from you. In the upper room discourse in John chapter 15, Jesus wanted to make it abundantly clear how he wanted to relate with his people. He says this, and th- th- he says, This is my commandment that you guys love one another just as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, he's obviously foreshadowing what he's about to do, lay down his life. He says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I've made it known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he'll give it to you. These things I command you, so you'll love one another. Think about this. Jesus calls us friends. God calls us friends, not projects. We can know that Jesus is our friend and that God is our father because Jesus has laid down his life for us. That's the first evidence. And the second one is he's disclosed everything he knows about his father to us. He's not held anything back. God has not held anything back from us that would hinder us from having a full life in his name. Think about that this morning. All the places you feel like he's holding back on you, he's not done that. He's he's made it all known to us in his word. It's those times that, you know, God, we feel like God is holding out on us that we got to remember that we're his friends. Not like friends of friends. You know, like, you know, like that kid growing up that, that had a cousin of a cousin that was a famous guy that he always talked about? You know what I'm talking about? That's not how God relates to you. That's not how we relate to him. That's why in the book of Hebrews, he says we have access to enter the throne room of grace with boldness. We can bust right into the king's chambers because that's what Jesus has done for us. Secondhand faith, church, can't afford to be real because it just knows God from a distance. doesn't know him Personally, you know, this happens to me all the time as a pastor. But it goes a little something like this: I meet someone, we start chatting, we find something in common. God's gifted me that way; I can pretty much do that with everybody. And uh, and then I start to get to know them for who they really are. But it's usually before they find out what I do. And so I'm talking with this guy at one of my kids' banquets a couple weeks ago, and he finds out that I used to live in Las Vegas, and it was like, man, he just. He just came alive at that point. It was like you know bleep bleep bleepity bleep, and you know just talking about why'd you ever leave Vegas, man. I bet it was awesome there. And he goes, oh, by the way, what do you do? I was like, you know, I'm I'm a pastor. He's like, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. Right? I mean, I, I get that that happens quite a bit, and I'm like, dude, just be you. Just just be you. God wants to you know save you, not the version you think I of you. You know think. You, you know, think that you are. So anyway, I, yeah, I don't know if that guy had secondhand faith or not. Maybe he did. But that's kind of what it looks like, right? That it's like afraid to know God. Because to him, I'm like a representative of God, like we all are, um, and uh, more holy than him for some reason. But, you know, that's, that's not the, the, the truth. So, you know, people that have secondhand faith avoid repentance because they don't know God. Repentance is a problem because they don't know God. They don't know that repentance is the glue of our spiritual growth. Repentance is what deepens our friendship and connection and intimacy with God. This is why, you know, when when God meets with Moses in Exodus 33, I love this phrase. He says, the the Lord used to speak face-to-face with Moses as a man speaks to his friend. When you open God's word, are you speaking face-to-face with a friend? That's God's heart for you. To be face-to-face with a friend through his word. Romans 2.4, what's it say? When we repent, God is showing what to us? His kindness. He's showing the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience that leads us back to the place he called us to. Just like Abram. First-hand faith is face-to-face friendship with God. That's what God wants with you. The only way you get it is through Jesus. You don't get it through grandma, your spouse, your mom and dad. You get it through Christ. And he wants to meet with you face-to-face, church. Second thing we see about first-hand faith is this, is that first-hand faith lives with an open hand, not a closed fist. So, you know, we're going to get to the situation that comes up here with Abram and Lot. Um, it comes through a strained relationship that the two of them have. How many of you have ever had a strained relationship before? The rest of you are liars. We've all had a strained relationship. Some of you have one right now, and you really need to listen to what I'm about to tell you, what God's going to tell you. We see that this firsthand faith is this face-to-face relationship with God that changes how we relate to God and how we relate to how God's going to take care of us. Because in the church, there's this, especially the American church, there's this like, hey, me and Jesus spiritual thing. There's kind of this dualism thing going on. And then there's like, hey, what do I do with my money thing over here? It's like these two separate things. And what we see in Abram is it's kind of all together for him. Um, it, it changes how he trusts God for his provision. Because what, what we see is that it all belongs to God. And, and we're invited to live with an open relationship to money. Um, your, your stinginess can't thwart the plan of God. Um, but it can rob you of the joy of knowing God more deeply. Let's, let's see what happens here. I'm going to read just the scenario so, you, so it's fresh in your mind. Lot, who went with Abram, remember, he's kind of got the secondhand faith is what it looks like. He's nephew, you know, kind, of, kind of Abram's surrogate son. He, he also had flocks and herds and tents, and they had so much stuff that they brought out of Egypt that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. And, uh, for their possessions were so great that they couldn't dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flocks and, and Lot's, and the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling also in the land. So they've got they've probably not got the best spot of land is the idea you're getting, but they've got land. And so um, here, here's what happens next. Keep going here. All right, I'm gonna have to find this here. Oh, you guys are awesome, thank you. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. That's key. Abram is walking with firsthand faith with God. He's hearing God. God's speaking to him. His, relation, his priorities on the relationship here, right? Let there be no strife between you and me, uh, Lot, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, Abram says to Lot. If you take the land on the left, I'm gonna go to the right, vice versa, right? And then he goes on to say this. He says, uh, Lot Lot lifted up his eyes. This is what Lot does. He lifts up his eyes. He sees the Jordan Valley. It's well watered everywhere. It's Vegas, right? Not Vegas isn't well watered, but you get the point. It's like the garden of the Lord. It's like Eden, man. It's like Egypt. It's in the direction of Zoar. And this, Moses wants to make clear he wrote this. Hey, this is before, you know, the bad stuff happened. Um, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself what any person walking in the flesh would choose, what looked good. He chose the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Remember, east is bad in Genesis, right? Um, And so he chose that. And and then they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We're going to come to that in the next point, but remember that. Okay, so what we see here is that Abram uh, is really focused on this relationship with lot. He wants to disciple him. He wants him to have firsthand faith with the Lord. And so the solution, and and a lot of strife in your life, if you think about it, it's it's a couple of different things it could be. It's pride or money or money and pride, right? But, But money a lot. There's a reason why in premarital counseling, you know, we talk about, you know, four big things, the gospel, obviously, conflict resolution, money, and sex. Those are the four things you've got to be on the same page about to get married. Generosity is what we see in, in, in Abram's story is the solution to strife for him. I know God's going to take care of me. Let me just get, live with an open hand with what God's given me. Because Abram's living in this repentant relationship, this face-to-face relationship with God And, and, and when, you, when you know that God provides for you and he knows everything about you and you can't surprise him, it gives you a confidence when conflict comes up. It gives you a confidence when strife comes up. When God has to come get you out of jail in the middle of the night in Egypt, there's nothing left to hide, right? I mean, that's what happened. And so Abram surrenders control here and Abram leans into the conflict. He won't do this every time, but he does it here. L- listen to that verse eight again. Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we are family. We are physical family, and he desires for them to be spiritual family too. So Abram wants to live in harmony with his nephew, and that's the priority. And, uh, and he's interested in taking the next right step, right? In the Bible, really, there's, there's two things that last forever, right? If we could boil it all down. The Lord and his word and the souls of people why do we surrender our lives to things other than that? Why do we serve things other than that? If those are the two, th- I mean, if we're looking at a ROI standpoint, return on investment, I know you guys are all investing in GameStop and going crazy this, this week, but um, that's a whole nother thing. The sermon's timely, I'm telling you. Um, why do we surrender our lives to anything other than those two things? In our lives, church, if we're walking in a repentant relationship with with God, people should always have the priority. Always have the priority. So when a Christian gets into a situation where there's tension and conflict, what are we to do? To focus on a relationship with God, that face-to-face relationship with him, and to humbly surrender our lives so that others can flourish. Is there a relationship in your life right now where money or pride has taken the place of a person? Have you done everything possible to live at peace with that person, to outdo, uh, outdo, you know, to to show honor uh, to one another, try to outdo one another in showing honor like the book of Romans talks about. What's keeping you from being reconciled to that person right now? Is it anything other than your pride? You know, to consider others better than ourselves is to surrender our wills. That's way different than shaming and canceling people, isn't it? It's way different. So Abram is opening his hand instead of closing his fist with the stuff that God's given him and to this relationship that God's giving him. And just as an aside, wisdom with provision and like money and stuff in my life, it almost always goes bad when I try to move fast. It's about moving slow. It's about prayerfully seeking with wisdom the decisions to make. Verse 10, we see here the, the, the decision that Lot makes. Lot sees the option before him. One looks like the garden, what he imagines the garden to look like. Uh, and, and, and he imagines the garden would be like Egypt. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, and, and, um, and he chooses that one. His, his desire is aroused. It's always been in him, but now he has the opportunity to act on it. That's how temptation works, right? We, we, we're tempted to think that something was put into us. Like, oh, you know, Uncle Abram, why'd you put that on me? No, he always wanted Egypt. Ever since the day he left Egypt, he wanted to go back. We know what that's like, don't we? We know what that's like deep down to struggle like Paul says in Romans 7. You know, the thing I don't want to do, I do, right? The Spirit guides us through that, though. He helps us through that. You want to see how sin works in the world? On a Saturday morning in the Johnson house, put five cinnamon rolls in the middle of a table with four kids. They eat the first one so fast, they can't even taste it. That's how we work, or right? We want more. I love what Richard Foster says here about this. In his, in his book, Money, Sex, and Power, he says, without question, money has taken on sacred character in our world. And it would be good for us, listen to this, to find ways to defame it, to defile it, to trample it under our feet. He says, so step on it, yell at it, laugh at it, list it way down on your list of scale and value. Certainly far below friendship and cheerful surroundings and engage in the most profane act of all. Give it away. That's so good, isn't it? And yet so hard, isn't it? Let me step back and ask a question to you right here. How has your own relationship with God been impacted from your affluence? Abram got rich really quick. It was from his sin, but God allowed him to keep it, to bless him with it. And, you know, as Jesus said, more money, more problems. That was a joke some of you got, but... um, Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and that's like all of us, right? There's degrees of affluence, but the fact that you are able to come here this morning shows that you have some degree of affluence. Abram gets back to where he worshiped God and sacrifices. He builds an altar, and then he gives his nephew choice pick of the land. How has your influence, to whatever extent that is, led your heart your affluence, rather, led your heart to worship because you know that it all belongs to him. That's the act of faith is having an open hand and saying, God, let him choose and I'm gonna trust you to take care of me. That's scary, isn't it? It's giving up control of what you, and money is the the most deceitful thing of all because we think that we can control our lives if we have enough of it. And God strips it away. But the way to worship God with it is to open our hands and say, God, you know, whatever happens with this stuff, I know you're gonna care for me. That's how you live in affluence and are able to worship God. You live any other way, you live in sin. Church, I mean, I could tell you my struggle with this, uh, even this week, all right, so here's a here's, here's situation. We replace our minivan, get a, get, a, get a different car, right? And I'm selling it and I'm thinking, I'm looking up the Kelly Blue Book, if you know what that is, like here's what it's worth. And uh, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm getting that money, all right? I'm getting it out of there. I didn't ask God what he wanted to do with the van, all right? Who has time for that, right? And so I, I, I list it up online. I get this guy that comes, Raul, and he uh, get there. And like, I'm careful not to build too close of a relationship because I just know he's just trying to butter me up, right? That's what I'm thinking. That's how sinful I am. And uh, and so uh, and so, of course, we get down to brass tacks after he likes the the, the ride and stuff, and he says, "Okay, I've got thousand dollars less than what you've listed it for." Is what he tells me, and I'm thinking, oh, "Here we go, Lord." And then he starts sharing his story with me, and I'm like, "I'm like trying not to believe it, guys. I kid you not, he is he is surprising his pastor with the minivan. I kid you not." They're having a big party this weekend. Maybe he already has it, and he's giving the minivan to his pastor. And I am thinking, God, you have got to be kidding me. And of course, I'm like, yeah, you know, here, take it. You want me to knock a couple more grand off? You know, I didn't do that. That would have been what Abram did. But I, I mean, just like, isn't that how we work, though? That we just get, we just, we just think we have control because we think that it belongs to us. But in that moment, God wanted that man to get that van for his pastor. And I could either close my fist and tell him to walk away, give me another thousand, or I could open my hand and let it go. I wish I wish that would have been a more worshipful experience for me. I'm glad it's humorous to you now, but you've got your own stories and I, I'll hear them sometime. But in other words, is your money like separate from your spirituality? Or do you see God directing it where he wants to bless the world? Because that's how Abram saw it. It led him to worship. Not to worship money, but to worship God. Most Christians relate to money very poorly, whether it's poverty or riches. And the broken way we relate most of the time is much more like Lot than Abram. The third thing that I want to just mention in this passage here is that firsthand firsthand faith prioritizes life in a godly community. You remember I I told you to to keep in mind the fact that, that Lot knew the land was close to Sodom and Gomorrah, but he didn't think that would impact him. So um, here's what we said, uh, Genesis 12, or 13, 12 and 13. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom because the better land was closer to Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Your community matters, church. Lot is so blinded by the possibility of great wealth and affluence, pleasure and possibility, that he forgets the community that he's flourished in. Where'd he get all that stuff from? from riding on Uncle Abram's coattails. That's how he got it, he didn't get it on his own. He's so blinded by that. So he's going to sow his wild oats now. And what happens? We'll see next week in Genesis 14, but a big war happens in the valley. Lot, all of his people, all of his possessions get taken captive and Uncle Abram has to go down there with 318 of the guys that he's raised up for battle to slaughter them all and bring Lot home. That's what happens. He had to be rescued, and it won't be the last time. But here's what happens when Abram trusts the Lord. Genesis 13, 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes up and look from the place where you are. Look in every direction, even where Lot's at, north, south, east, west. For all the land that you see, I'm gonna give to you and I'm gonna give it to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, so your offspring could be counted. What a promise to a barren couple that are old, right? Arise, walk the length and the breadth of the land because I'm gonna give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and he settled by the oaks of Mamre which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So what does God do? He leans in, you kind know, of that firsthand faith, and he reiterates the promise. Hey, Abram, what you've just done, that shows me you still know me. You still want to follow me. And Abram goes to the oaks at Mamre, and he worship, He worships God there. He builds an altar. He, he claims that land. And that that land would indicate that there was a large landscape. This has got to be a big tree if it's got a name, right? And they've built, there's lots of altars there, right? People have tried to claim that land. And Abram goes and puts his stake in the ground with his little tribe in the midst of all these big nations. And he says, God says, this is ours. You know, it's interesting, if you look in the book of Second Samuel, David, when he begins his reign, the king whose kingdom will have no end, who Jesus will come from. Do you know the first place That he stays, the first place that he spends time as king. Do you know where it is? In Hebron. Because he wanted to remember the promise that God gave to Abram. It's where he starts his ministry. David is hooked into the promise of Abram, a thousand years later. To wrap up the significance of what's happened a lot, I just want to close with this question What place does godly community have in your list of priorities? Right now. You you can look no further than your calendar, by the way. It's a real good indicator for you. What place does godly community have in your list of priorities? One of my greatest concerns uh, for the the pandemic online church movement culture that we've been all thrusted into, um, whether you're online or whether you're here with us, uh, is that real, genuine, godly community um, will be the sacrifice of the pandemic, um, and I'm not—I'm not knocking anybody who tunes in online. I get, it's weird times, but there are ways that you can connect with God's family, even if you're not in person. It's harder. It's more difficult. It's more challenging. It's easier. It's easier to say no to because there's no accountability. But make no mistake: if you sacrifice godly community, you will suffer from it. You will pay for it because God has chosen to advance His kingdom since the beginning of time through disciples. You're disciples who make disciples. Podcasts don't make disciples. Videos don't make disciples. Disciples make disciples. And so I, I just want to ask you, what? how are you prioritizing godly community now? Because the biggest thing the enemy wants to do right now is to isolate you, just like he did Lot in that valley. And the temptation is to think, ah, it's really not that big of a deal. And all of a sudden, you're wrapped up in Sodom and Gomorrah's war. In my own home, you know, I've, especially over the pandemic, I've got uh, this beautiful, godly community that I've had a chance to prioritize and pastor well. Uh, It's my first church to pastor. It's my family. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of church discipline in the church at home. Uh, There's a lot of exhortation. Um, There's a lot of repentance from every side. Um, But there's also a lot of love and encouragement. That's something you can't get anywhere else other than in a godly community, just this past week, our youngest daughter um, was just it was two weeks ago she's really frustrated because you know everybody else has got to do like a sport or something and been on, been on a team and been encouraged and, and got a trophy and, uh, and t- uh, Maggie, who's our youngest. It was just expressing that to Tatum. And so Maggie buys this gymnastics bar, and Tatum gives her, her old beam, and they're down in the, the basement, and, um, and Tatum is like coaching Maggie in gymnastics, right? Um, well, this past week, she's like, Mom, I got, I got, a, I got an idea. Um, I want to, you know, because Maggie really wants to be a part of it. She's like, I want to get Maggie a trophy. Um, and so she gets her this, this trophy, um, and she, uh, she gets it with her own money. And if you can't read it, it says, Maggie Johnson has won the hardest working award. You see, church, when you live in community with other people, you get encouragement that you can't find anywhere else, certainly not on social media. So why do we spend so much of our time looking looking for love, looking for encouragement, and all the places we're never gonna find it? I wanna encourage you, I wanna encourage you to, to consider this today. I pray this will be our story at New City Church, that that firsthand faith will be our story. And that will lead us to live lives of repentance, generosity, and deep, deep community with one another. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, uh, we have experienced a train. <laughs> we have experienced just a lot this morning, Lord, already. And uh, you have been... So, so faithful to us. So, so good to us, Lord. And, and we need you. We need you to come near to us this morning. I'm so thankful that Jesus calls us friends, that the thing that he wanted to share on the night that he was betrayed was that we're his friends and that he's not held anything back from us and that everything that we that he knew about the father we know about the father. And so Lord, we just pray that, that you would cause us to live lives that repent well, knowing that you want a face-to-face first-hand relationship with us and nothing else will satisfy us or your heart, Lord. And so Lord, I pray as we turn to this table this morning that you would strengthen our faith. Should give us courage to confess the darkness so that the light can actually be light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.